Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and we'd like to welcome you to our Air of Shabbat broadcast here at Benai Shalom. I trust that you've had a good week and are ready for the Sabbath, and we're certainly ready for the Sabbath to begin here as well. A couple of quick announcements for you. Uh, we're entering into the holiday season. I hope that you're making plans for Passover for your family. And later on, uh, the Feast of Weeks that follows there uh, some 50 days later, uh, Shavuot, we, Lionel Land Ministries, are hosting a Shavuot event. It will be here in Norman uh, that weekend, and we would certainly love to have you come and fellowship with us for the Feast of Weeks. If you're interested in that, we ask you to go to ShavuotEvent.com. You can register online and join us. We have a beautiful facility that's set up perfectly for folks to come in and enjoy that. We have a number of speakers invited. should be a wonderful weekend, and we'd love to fellowship with you then. Looking long range now to the fall, um, we also host our annual Feast of Tabernacles event. That will be coming in the fall, but registration for it opens up March 1. And if you'd like to plan to be part of the Feast of Tabernacles event that we hold here in Chandler, Oklahoma, we would love to have you as well. The sign-up place for that to register is tabernaclesevent.com. Tabernaclesevent.com. You can go online and register for that uh, to begin. Be praying about uh, Camp Yeshua, our youth camp. Uh, with, we have a full registered camp. A little bit of a waiting list. We're praying now. It be a life-changing experience for them. So you'll be thinking about and praying for them as well. All right. Without any further ado, let's uh, go to Kiddush, and we'll get our Sabbath underway. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Please join our family as we welcome in the Sabbath. Candles out again. Not this time. Okay, you ready? Ready? Help him. Ready? 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 O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light to the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. Kiddush, the blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Chamotzi, blessing over the bread. 
Hamotzi lechem in haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. Now for the blessing of our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day, and I thank you for the wife that you've given me. I pray that you would bless her, even in the middle of the night when she sees about the ways of the household. I pray that you would bless her and encourage her as she teaches and educates the children. I thank you for the blessing that she is to me and to our home and to our family. And I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her. Give her the product of her hands in everything that she does. And Father, I confess to her and to you that I love my wife. So Father, I pray that you would bless her with your very best blessing on this Sabbath day. We also lift up the widows and orphans, those without a husband or a father at this time as well. So we thank you, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Let us bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May He cause His face to shine upon you.
you long Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michmocha. Micha Mocha Baelimadonai Micha Mocha Nedahar Bachodesh Nohora Techilot Oho Sefelei Oho Sefelei Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord. Who is like you, O Lord? Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'alam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yeshua b'mashiach yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et ha'shabat, la'asot et ha'shabat l'adortam b'rit olam. B'nei avayom, b'nei Yisrael, odhit le'olam, k'shashet yamim asadonai, et ha'shamayim v'et ha'oretz avayom ha'shavi'i shavat v'yinafash. All together. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. If we all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Va'ed <Hebrew> 
Yeshua Hamashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Ochecha, b'chol levavcha uv'kol nashicha, uv'chol me'odecha. Veheyu hadavrim ha'ale asher nechim ezavcha hayom alevavcha. V'shinan tam lavanecha, v'tepardabam peshivtecha, b'yetecha, uv'lektecha, v'derechu shakbika uv'kumika. Ukershatam la oto yadecha, veheyu la totvot binenecha, uchetavtam la mozuzo petecha uvisharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
If you would, please turn with me to the book of Exodus, to chapter 27. Hold your finger at verse 20, where our Torah portion for this week will begin. As always, as you open the scripture, I will do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher barchabanu mikol haamim, venetan lanu et torato, baruch atah Adonai, nonten ha-torah ha-amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion for this week is entitled Tetzaveh, which is, uh, says, you shall command the children of Israel. And that phrase, you shall command, is the title of our Torah portion. Has a little bit more strength to it as a title for a Torah portion that whatever is going to come and follow after this has to be very important. Has to be very important to the worship of the Lord. And as I always like to spiritually point out, All of these words and these commandments from the Torah are very important to our personal lives, our personal walk with the Lord. And in this Torah portion, I would dare say that that is exactly the case. Uh, Once again, we're at the time in the Torah when Moses is on the mountain receiving a great deal of instruction from the Lord. He's being shown the pattern of the tabernacle in heaven. And then these are all of the commandments of what when Moses goes back to the children of Israel, this is what they are to do. They're to build the tabernacle. They're to construct the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, the menorah, the outer court, the holy place, all of those things. And this continues on with more instruction. Our Torah portion will extend through the first part of chapter 30. We're going to talk about the fuel that is to be used for the menorah. We're going to talk about the garments of the high priest, which has so many parallels and so many profound uh, details and symbolism having to do with the Messiah that it has so much to do with us in our messianic faith. We're going to talk about the consecration of Aaron to the service of the high priest and his sons in chapter 29. And then in the first part of chapter 30, we will then construct the final piece of furniture that is inside the holy place, inside the tabernacle, and that is the golden altar of incense. I'm going to do something a little bit different uh, this week. I'm going to talk about that golden altar of incense first. Going all the way to the end of our Torah portion uh, to chapter 30, we always ask the question, why was this 
instruction to create this golden altar, which was another one of the beautiful golden articles that appeared inside the tabernacle that were inside the holy place, why is it only commanded now? After we've already built those things, after we've already built the tabernacle, one of the things that was interesting as well, I didn't point this out last week, uh, but it's well understood, we're building this tabernacle from the inside out. We're creating almost the heart of the tabernacle first with the Ark of the Covenant and then the other various furnishings of the holy place and then we build the walls and the structures and the veils and the coverings from there then after that then we had the outer court and we had the um the bronze altar that was the altar of burnt offering and we're building this from the inside out now we come to this Torah portion here we're going to have the instructions of the creation of the garments of the high priest and then finally here toward the end we then have this golden altar of incense that we're to build, and wait a minute, wait a minute, that goes all the way back on the inside. Why is that not created back along with those other golden articles? Well, this is what uh, many Torah teachers have said many times before. We have to look at what that golden altar represented and why that would then become after all of these other instructions. This is what it is. This golden altar of incense was it was one cubit by one cubit square, so it was about 18 inches square, and it's two cubits tall. And it would stand there in the right before the veil, before the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered by the veil. And then you had the table of showbread on your right, you'd have the menorah on your left, and this is the place, this is the altar, that incense would be burned daily. And it's instructed that it was to be, it was to be before the mercy seat, before the, the Ark of Testimony, and that's where God said he will meet with you, as he's instructing Moses about it. He tells them that Aaron shall burn incense on it every morning and that it's a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Let me also read uh, this verse, verse 9 of chapter 30. You shall offer no strange incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering, nor shall you put a drink offering on it. And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year, the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year. He shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. This is an incense altar that is supposed to have incense on it perpetually, all the time, that it's to be a sweet aroma before the Lord. The sages say that the, this burning of this incense upon this altar was the prayers of the saints. And one of the things that we've often mentioned before, and symbolically I've taught many times before, that when we pray before the Lord, it is as if we're offering up an incense before the Lord for him to smell, for him to partake of and then act accordingly. And that's what this, the burning of this incense upon this golden altar, that's what it represented. So it's often called the prayers of the saints, the smoke that came up from this altar. I find it very interesting that it was very specifically mentioned that it says no burnt offering, no grain offering and no drink offering. That you have to think about this. If we were the representative is your high, is the high priest. This he represents you going before the Lord, and that he would go and he would offer up this uh, this prayer before the Lord to meet with God who is above the Ark of Testimony. If you were to go in and do that kind of prayer, you're talking about as close to the holy places, uh, the holy of holies, as you can get to make that offering. If you were going to really be that close to the presence of God and offer up a prayer to Him, wouldn't you have done maybe some preparation before doing that? 
Wouldn't you, maybe there's a little bit more reverence to that kind of prayer in the same way that when a, a uh, sacrifice was brought and you'd say something over the sacrifice, you would pray and you'd offer your sacrifice that would go on the bronze, the uh, altar of burnt offering, and that'd be one kind of prayer or service before the Lord. This one would be something totally different. And I point out the fact that very specifically it says no burnt offering, grain offering, no drink offering. This is an offering before the Lord that has nothing to do with food, that has nothing to do with anything that might be your own pleasures, that this would be a fervent prayer that would be associated with fasting that would be this kind of service before the Lord. So whenever we think in our own personal lives, in our own personal tabernacle inside of our hearts, and we're thinking about praying to the Lord and meeting with the Lord in our own personal tabernacle, and we might picture ourselves or the high priest or your intercessor going in before that altar of of incense and offering up a prayer before the Lord, you should be very cautious to think and uh, to know that this is a very special service, this is going into the very presence of God, and that this should actually be a more reverent prayer, not a so that you would also fast in the process of this sort of thing. So I tend to uh, believe that this kind of service, this kind of prayer, is the most fervent of all prayers. Where you fast, where you don't drink, where you then are very specifically going in to worship the Lord. And so this golden altar of incense, it represents us going into the presence of God. And what we want to make sure is in place before that happens is that we have all of the proper protocols, all the proper boundaries so that we don't do anything inappropriate before the Lord. This is that the golden altar that we believe, if we know the stories coming uh, later in our Torah cycle, of Nadab and Abihu who offer strange fire before the Lord. We believe that this is possible, that this is the place where they did it. That they put a strange incense upon that altar, something that was not prescribed, and they died because of it, instantly by the glory of God. So that is something that when we think about this sort of article and, and our, us going into the presence of God, that we need to make sure all the boundaries are in place. That all the right things are appropriate before the Lord before we would worship Him in that way. So then that answers the question, why does this instruction come after some of these other things are established. Well, let's go back and let's see. Because as we go through the instructions of the tabernacle, like I said, in last week's portion, the tabernacle's been built. But now what I'm saying is there needs to be certain things in place, certain boundaries in place, if you will, that are need to be there before you can safely go in to the presence of God and fervently pray, and fervently meet with Him at the Ark of Testimony. We need a couple of things in place. So let's talk about some of those things. Our Torah portion begins at the end of Exodus chapter 27. Now, I say the book of Exodus, uh, the, the name Exodus has kind of worn out its, its usefulness. We're talking about the book of Shemot, the book of names, and this is we're continuing to learn the character of God. And so here, at the end of chapter 27, we have this small commandment here at verse 20. It says this, You shall command the children of Israel to bring a pure oil of pressed olives for the light. To cause the lamp to burn continually in the tabernacle of meeting, outside the veil which is before the testimony. Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to, to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. 
Here we have the commandment for the fuel of the menorah. I point out this, this is very, there's a very basic principle that's going on here. Before one could go into the holy place and worship before the Lord, it, remember it had four very thick coverings over it. It was very, it was closed, it had a veil for a, for a door, and it was completely enclosed. So, and I imagine inside that place would have been very dark. So one of the things before anybody should ever think about going into that place, there would need to be some light so that one would not stumble, so that one would know where they are going, what they are doing. And so this is something that, that comes, this instruction comes just at the right time to when it's like, all right, we're now going to illuminate the holy place. Well, you now can safely go into the holy place and there's going to be very, some very specific things that are going to happen inside that holy place. And the Lord specifically doesn't want you doing anything in that holy place until this has been commanded. It's almost a natural thing that this has to come first. You might ask, why didn't this instruction come after we were instructed to build the menorah? You have build the menorah, then instruct us on how to light the menorah. No, God wanted a few other things in place so that everything is ready for the, the, the structure and the court of the tabernacle has been created. Now we will start talking about going into that most intimate place. We're going to fuel the lampstand. Always very interesting when you talk about the specifics of olive oil and what it represents and why this specifically was used as the fuel for the menorah. Always fascinating. When it says pure oil pressed by olives, it's believed that this was the finest grade of oil was the only oil that was acceptable to be used to fuel the menorah. That first cold press, extra virgin olive oil uh, that you might have seen maybe there in the uh, in the aisle in the grocery store. That the first press of olives, that first squeeze of olives that was the most pure, it was the cleanest, it was the most rich of all the oils. That was the only one that was allowed to be used for to fuel the menorah. It's also the only one that's ever prescribed that you can use for anointing, that you want the purest of olive oil. You can also press olives several times more. There's different grades of olive oil that all have different um, usefulness, that, that uses that is good that, you, that the oil is more is best applied to. And those different applications of olive oil actually relate to the themes and the works of the Messiah. You see, that first press is for anointing. And that's what is for, for the anointed one. And the term Mashiach or Messiah means the anointed one. You see, that second press that was used was always the one that's more commonly used for food. More commonly used that is good for cooking and is good for fuel. But, however, we only use the holiest of oil. For in the service of the tabernacle. And that last press of the oil, of the olive, when it gets crushed and to get more oil out of it, you have to really smash it and beat it to a pulp. And then that uh, oil that usually is cloudy, has more sediment in it, that one is the one that's used to make soap that's good for cleaning and cleansing. And here you can start to see the different roles and the works of the Messiah in those different things. He's the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is also the light of the world that he, that through him he lights the darkness and puts light into the darkness. He also nourishes us with his word and with his instruction in the way that food uh, nourishes us physically. And then there's soap. And he is the one who washes us clean. Though our sins may be as scarlet, he will make them white as snow. So in the teaching of the olive and the creation of olive oil, we have the works of Messiah. Now the sages of Israel who don't believe in Yeshua as the Messiah, 
They've related this exact same pattern to the life of Moses. That Moses went through a great deal of trials and tribulations. That he had killed an Egyptian and had to flee. And his own Hebrew brethren sold him out on the very next day and mentioned that he had killed him. And he had to flee there. And then he had to go and he had to... um, go return to Egypt, and he had to then free all of the Israelites from the Egyptians and deal with Pharaoh, but then also deal with his Hebrew brethren that looked poorly upon him when their burdens became became increased. And then they mumbled and grumbled against him for 40 years in the wilderness. And so Moses' life was contained a great deal of trials and tribulations and frustrations, but it was through the work of Moses that in because he was persecuted and crushed and, and pressed all the time, that it's then his testimony became that much stronger. Now, I agree with all of those points. They also liken into the life of Israel, how Israel's been persecuted for thousands of years, and that the blessings that come through the children of Israel all come out and, all, and can bless the world because of that oppression, that that's when you don't get... You don't get the goodness of the olive oil until the olive has been beaten and pressed and crushed. And they liken all of these things unto Israel and to Moses. But I think we can also liken it unto the Messiah. That it's by his stripes we are healed. And because he was crushed for our iniquities, then we have salvation. That the goodness of what he brings comes when that when it has been pressed. In the same way that an olive, when crushed and pressed... Is that's when you get the goodness of the oil out of it. One other cool thing of note, those later grades of olive oil, when you have to smash it to a pulp, you know what's mo- what the part of the fruit of the olive that's in the oil, we call the flesh. And I think it's really cool to think that we want, when we want the purest of olive oil, we have to remove the flesh. There can't be any of the temptations of the flesh present in that most holiest of oils that is used for the service of the menorah and for the service of anointing. So we want to get that flesh aspect out of it if we're going to worship the Lord. Amen? Amen. Chapter 28 now begins where we talk about the articles and the clothing of the high priest of Israel and of the Levites. This is one of the most fascinating chapters. I've always loved this chapter because there's so many things that are visual and you can picture anybody who's ever a designer or a creative type that would look and see these things and it's like, wow, what did that look like? What may, what it may have been designed? And there's various, there's these beautiful pictures come to mind when we start to describe the instructions and the Clothing that was made for the high priest. Let me read here at the first part of chapter 28. Now take Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel that he may minister to me as priest. Aaron and his, and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans whom I fill who I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, and he may minister to me as a priest. And there are, and these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, that he may minister to me as priest. Here we have the instruction now Aaron is going to become the high priest of Israel and that these are and we are going to create garments for glory and for beauty. Some translations say majesty as well. 
that what is going to be created is something that is beautiful. That is, that the finest artisans of the world at the time are the ones who are going to come together, filled with the Holy Spirit, to create these garments of beauty and majesty. That we're not just creating garments for a, the service of the, of the, the tabernacle. We're creating garments that are actually fit for royalty and for a king. And that's what we're going to see is we're going to see that the office of the high priest is one that is of high esteem and is almost of royalty. These garments would have been highly valued and sought after. There's another story that connects to uh, the story of Purim, which is coming up here very soon in our Torah cycle uh, in the time of the year. That it's believed, and it's believed by many of the sages of Israel, that when the Babylonians conquered and destroyed the first temple, and they took all of the articles of the tabernacle with them as plunder, and there you may have seen the stone etching of Babylonians carrying off a menorah off after they have sacked the temple. It's believed that they also took possession of all the various things, including the garments of the high priest. And the story goes is that the king in the story of Purim, Ahasuerus, actually was in his possession the garments of the high priest. His ex-wife Vashti was a great-granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar and that it was believed that that the plunder of the land of Israel and the garments of the high priest were a wedding present that Vashti brought to the king Ahasuerus. And so there's a tradition that goes that he possessed those garments and may have worn them because they were finer than any garments that he had as the king of Persia. Now obviously that's one of we can think of that being one of the most sacrilegious things that we could imagine is somebody unworthy and unanointed to be wearing these garments but what that story speaks to is the majestic nature of these garments and how they would have been viewed by anyone else and of all the nations that these garments would have been the finest royal garments that could be created finer than anything else that they could own or possess at any time it's also interesting in the passage that i read at the first part of chapter 28, three times it says that he may minister to me, as in God, God's the one speaking, that he may minister to me as a priest. Now, I find it, it's not a coincidence, I believe, that it says that three times. But one, the thing that it points out to me is this, is that the first office and the first service of the high priest... When you think about it, what is he supposed to do? What is his service to to us? We talk about him as being our intercessor between us and the Most High God. And he has all of these tasks that he has to do throughout the tabernacle. But what is his first job, his first duty? He serves the Most High God. He ministers to the Most High God. That is his first role. That is his first job. And if we think about this and we think about Yeshua the Messiah... The Son of God, his, what is His service to us? His first responsibility, His first task, is to be at the right hand of the Father. That is His first job, that then He comes down and then ministers to us. We should always remember that, and we always remember, and that should cause us to be humbled that He is not there. He, the Messiah and the Son of God does not exist to serve us. That we don't look to him that it's like whenever we ask and something bad in life goes on and we say, you know, Lord, why did that happen? Or aren't you supposed to, aren't you supposed to do this for me? No. Let us remember and let us never make the mistake that the first service of the Messiah, the Mashiach, the anointed one, is to the Most High God first. 
That should humble us in the process to understand that we are the servants and that we are not the one who is served, if we understand that correctly. So I want to always keep that in mind when we think about the Messiah, and that will play a part as well when we continue to talk about the role of the high priest. Let's talk about some of these garments. I'll go through them as quickly as I can and describe them. Some of us have heard the teachings before of what they looked like. There was an ephod that was made of purple, scarlet, and blue thread and gold, and it was woven together. And you might not be familiar with this term ephod. What it basically was was it was a large, wide belt or apron-like garment. And it had two shoulder pads that came up and stopped right here. We're then going to create um, two stones that are basically going to be clasps at the top of those shoulders that are then going to connect to the breastplate. The breastplate was going to then contain the 12 stones of the tribes of Israel made of the same material, the blue, purple, and scarlet material of the breastplate. And then gold chains were going to basically attach the shoulder pads to then the waistband. And so you'd have this apron-like garment with a breastplate breastplate in the middle and this was the ephod and the breastplate and how it was all connected. Very interesting things about the stones of the breastplate and also of these two um, fittings that were on the shoulders. The two stones, two onyx stones that were on the shoulders, very fascinating that it was told, instructed to, uh, to Moses that they are to write the names of the children of Israel according to their birth on these stones. And so there would have been six names of the sons of Israel on one stone and six on the other stone. And that they were written in Hebrew and they were listed there. And so the spiritual aspect of this was that the high priest would bear the burdens of the children of Israel, of all the whole house of Israel, of all the tribes of Israel, that all the names would be upon his shoulders. It's also interesting in many parallels to this that there were six names on each stone. There was also 25 Hebrew letters on each stone, that there was balance on those shoulders, that it was not imbalanced. And so 25 letters on one stone, 25 on the other, 50 letters total. We, are, we liken them to many different parallels such as parallels of judgment, parallels of the 50 days to Shavuot. Um, And so that there's other parallels going on with just the numbers of those letters. There's another parallel that I'd like to point out. First, let me say this. Uh, Very interesting. The only two letters, Hebrew letters, that did not appear on any of those stones was a chet and a tet. And those two letters are the primary letters of the word chata, which means sin. So it's interesting to look at the garments of the high priest, and upon the shoulders there was no sin upon the shoulders of the high priest. Always fascinating to look at it that way. Also, in verse 10 of chapter 28, it says, Six of their names on one stone and six of the names on the other stone. That first phrase, six of their names on. Very interesting if you look into the Hebrew there. The words that would be read there is shisha, mishmotam, al. And so those three words start to describe and start to read in that verse. And if you take an acrostic of the first uh, letter of each of those words, you get a shin, you get a mem, and you get an ein. And that spells out shema. Now, you might look at and say, you're like, okay, well, that's just, that can just be a coincidence sometimes that you would liken into the Shema to these things and that you'd read a Shin, a Mem, and an Ein, and that spells Shema. You just took, you know, the first letter of three words. Also fascinating parallel. That might be the case of how we got to the Shema in the first place. But however, if you look at the Shema, Shema Yisrael Adonai Elcheinu Adonai Echad, six Hebrew words that are there. 
with 25 Hebrew letters that make up that phrase. In the same way that each stone on the shoulders had six names or six words and also 25 total letters in it. If you look at the second clause of the Shema, Baruch Shem Kidvod Malkuto Le'olam Va'ed, also six Hebrew words with 25 Hebrew letters. Fascinating parallel between the Shema, which we call the watchword of our faith, which we call the, the, uh, the, uh, one of the, the greatest commandments, or the prologue to the greatest commandment, to hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That this is the thing that should be upon the high priest, upon the shoulders of the high priest. That it's something that, we, that should weigh upon us at all times. That we should constantly follow after the commandments of God and the Shema, hear, O Israel, that we are to remember those things at all times. And that all of Israel is to hear the words of the Lord and that the, that the pattern upon the shoulders of the high priest carries this commandment and carries the burdens of all the children of Israel. Something that should always be on the mind and was on the forefront of the high priest of Israel. We then have talk about the breastplate, and I've mentioned many times before that there's much debate on what stones and what the order of the names of the children of Israel that were listed, but the, the high priest not only bore the names of the children of Israel on his shoulders, but he also kept them close to his heart where this breastplate was. And there's many different stones and precious and semi-precious stones that would have made up this breastplate. Um, many people have many opinions on what stones they were. I believe that there is some power to whatever those stones were, that every element of, of nature has frequencies and that we are creating something that has even more, um, there's more meaning and symbolism to it in the spiritual as much as there is in the physical. And so we don't know exactly what stones they were. We don't know exactly what order they were listed in. I have my own personal opinion on what that is. Uh, however, it, again, we just, we don't know. Um, I will say this personally. I have uh, begun a collection in attempting to um, track down going to gemstone uh, gem shows to try and create a collection of some of these stones. Not because I'm trying to create some sort of supernatural, powerful, spiritual healing, uh, you know, sort of new age concept of, of use of these stones, but because as a teacher, I'm always I'm a visual learner, and I always want to one day maybe be able to have a little show and tell, and to be able to teach someone and show. This is what it may have looked like, and it would have been. It's encouraging for us to see that the things of Scripture are real. Um, so hopefully, I could do that one day. Now I don't plan to have you know large forty carat diamond in my possession at all times, but hopefully I can find some raw versions of some of these stones just so that we can visually get uh, that depiction, if you will. So one day, maybe I'll have something to show and tell when we get to this Torah portion. If we continue on with our uh, creation of the garments that the high priest wore. The breastplate was also a pocket that contained the Urim and the Thummim. This was a two stones that were used to determine if one was to inquire of the Lord that these stones would somehow communicate what the Lord is intending if he was to ask an, or have an inquiry. 
the stone, one stone supposedly would light up while the other one would determine whether the answer is yes or no. And we don't understand these things exactly, but there, it is related to in other parts of Scripture, uh, specifically First uh, Samuel chapter 30, when David inquires of the Lord if he's going to pursue the Philistines in battle, he goes to the high priest and he asks the high priest, what should I do? Should I pursue the Lord? The high priest, it's inquired of the Lord and it's believed to use the Urim and the Thummim to give King David an answer in that time. So there's other parts of scripture that this relates to. The other garments that were created, there's a robe of all blue that the high priest would wear underneath the ephod. And on the bottom of that, it would be uh, bells along the base of that robe and also decorative pomegranates made of blue, purple, and scarlet material. And that these bells were, would basically give warning at all times. If you ever were in the tabernacle, you would hear these bells. You would know exactly where the high priest was inside the tabernacle. It specifically says uh, in, chapter th- in verse 35, it says this, They shall beat upon Aaron as he ministers, and the sound will be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, that he may not die. What this was, was this was to give fair warning to the Lord that this was not just any person coming into the presence of God, walking into the holy place, or perhaps the holy of holies, or near the holy of holies, but it was the high priest. These bells would give fair warning of who was there. That was the purpose of these bells. However, the thing that's very interesting is if we look in the instructions for Yom Kippur, which is the one day out of the year that one that the high priest was to go into the holy place before the Ark of the Covenant, behind the veil, and we have these instructions in Leviticus chapter 16, that he was instructed to not wear the blue robe at that time. So there was a great deal of fear and trepidation upon every high priest of Israel at any point in time that they had to go do the service of Yom Kippur to appear before the Lord. They didn't get to wear the warning bells, if you will, if they were going before the Lord. So that service, there was a great deal of reverence to that service and making sure there was nothing happening that was inappropriate in any way, shape or form. I've heard it said this, the, entire, the entirety of the priesthood to, and the service of the tabernacle, what many of the things that they did and the main service that they did was boundary maintenance. That there was boundaries that the children of Israel were allowed to go so far into the outer court or that certain priests were only able to go before the, into the holy place and that constantly were maintaining the boundaries of what it is to go appropriately before the Lord. And I said this at the beginning of of our teaching, that this is the thing that needs to be in place. All of the priests need to know what they're doing, what their role is, what are the proper boundaries before any common man should come and approach the presence of the Lord. So we have these instructions, and so there's some boundaries even within the priesthood, such as these warning bells that were upon the blue robe. The final uh, garments that were made for the high priest, there was a crown that was put upon his head that was said holiness to the Lord or holy to yod heh vav There was also a turban that he wore and also a linen tunic that it was a white tunic that was another layer below the blue robe. And then all the way down even to what's called linen trousers uh, that they were to wear. That basically we have the instruction for the underwear of the priesthood. That all of these things, and it says specifically the linen trousers to cover their nakedness. That, and it shall reach from the waist to the thighs. And it's so that they were to be holy when they minister before the Lord. That there was proper modesty. 
and coverage and that there is nothing immodest about the priesthood as they went to serve the Lord. I've always jokingly said in the process of this that saying that the uh, undergarments went from the waist to the thighs so that so the priests wore boxers as opposed to briefs. So we have the biblical precedent and the answer to that age old question. So. This was what was to be appropriate before the Lord, that all of these layers were so that there is no pure modesty and appropriateness in the service of the tabernacle. If we continue on to chapter 29, this is where we talk about the um, uh, Aaron and his sons being consecrated to the service of the tabernacle. Let me go ahead and read here a little bit here at verse 4 of chapter 29. And Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. You shall wash them with water. You shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron, the robe of the ephod and the, ephod and the breastplate, and gird him with the in- intricately woven band of the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head. You shall put the holy crown on the turban. And you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head, and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them, and you shall gird them with sashes. Aaron and his sons, you shall put hats on them. The priesthood shall, the priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statute, so that you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. Here the, oh, we're t- given the instruction of when we're to put these garments on them, and we're going to consecrate them to the service of the tabernacle. One other thing that I would like to note as well is that they only wore these garments in the service of the tabernacle. They didn't wear these garments home. Aaron didn't come and go on his way back to his tent, you know, wearing the finest piece of garment that's ever been created in the world. No, those things stayed in the tabernacle and were specific to the service of the tabernacle. Very interesting if we compare Yeshua, who is our high priest, to the role of Aaron as well. That when Aaron moved amongst the people, he was called Aaron. He wasn't adorned in in jewels and garments of praise and majesty. He was not adorned in that way when he went and walked among the people. He wore those things when he was in the service, in the house of the Lord, and doing the service of the tabernacle. In the same way that we could liken unto the Messiah and his service, that yes, he's our king, he's our high priest, he serves at the right hand of the Most High God. However, he came down and when he ministered amongst the people, he appeared as a common man. He appeared as one of us, as just, and he was called by a name, and he was given, yes, honor and reverence, in the same way that when Aaron walked among the children of Israel, I'm sure they gave honor and reverence to him. But his appearance at those times, and when he was called Aaron, amongst the children of Israel, he was one of the men, one of the common men of Israel. And there was, and he came down, even though he's the high priest, even though he's wearing garments of majesty and royalty, he comes and he dwells amongst the people. Yeshua followed that exact same pattern as well. I point out this passage here where it says they poured the oil upon his head and they shall anoint him. That Hebrew verb for anoint is mashach, which means to anoint. It's a verb of anoint. And if you may hear that sounds familiar, that's because that's the root word of mashiach, which is the anointed one. So we have the verb anoint, mashach, and then you have the anointed one, mashiach. In all of Torah, you may have not noticed this before, but in all of Torah, when Aaron is recognized as the high priest or identified as the high priest, 
Sometimes Aaron's name is just mentioned and says, Aaron did this, and this is what Aaron did. But anywhere in Scripture where it says Aaron is identified as a high priest, he is called Hakoin Hamashiach, which is the anointed priest, or the priest who was anointed, as opposed to Hakoin Hagadol, which would be the high priest. Now that phrase appears, however, everywhere in the Torah where it mentions the words of high priest, it says the high priest who was anointed who had the anointing oil upon him. So that means every time the high priest is talked about here in our scripture, the term or the phrase Mashiach appears in the Hebrew. That he is the anointed one every time Aaron is recognized as high priest. Hakohen HaMashiach. It's kind of interesting here as we read the scripture in our English language, we see, you know, the one who is anointed or the one who was anointed and this was the high priest. He was anointed to the task. But when we start to seriously, if we, when we start to hear some of these words and sometimes these words call us to remember other things or other parallels and other parts of scripture, then remember this, that every time the high priest was mentioned, and described when he did a service, or when he did something inside the tabernacle, we were saying the word Mashiach, the anointed one, is the one who does this service. This being the same man, as I said, when he walked amongst the people, he was Aaron. He was one of the men, he looked like he was one of the commoners. However, his service was still that of the anointed one, who was anointed to serve in the tabernacle, to serve the Most High God, that was his first responsibility. And that Yeshua, our Mashiach, our Messiah, he fulfills that role as well. It's a blessing to us that we have these things in place for, so that we can worship our Creator, the Creator of heaven and earth. We need these things in place because we're... We tend to make mistakes. We tend to do things out of order from time to time. We think we might know best, and there's men in Scripture that think that as well. Nadab and Habihu certainly thought they were doing something that was honoring to the Lord when they offered strange fire, only it was not. It was not what was commanded before the Lord. What we need is we need an intercessor. We need boundaries in place. We need an entire system of people who know those boundaries and help us to serve the Lord. It's one of the reasons why we're so encouraged in our messianic faith, in our Christian faith, when we're amongst brethren, when we're amongst a fellowship or a community, that we have others around us that help us in our walk, that help us in our worship of the Lord. In the same way that if you were going to worship the Lord at the tabernacle, the priests were there to help you in the service of the tabernacle. To help you along so that you do things right, do things appropriately, and that it was truly honoring to the Most High God. We need these things in place before we understand how to truly be in the presence of God. We need others who have walked the walk to teach and encourage us. And we need those that have studied the commandments so that they can lead us and guide us in that worship and in that uh, in our prayers before the Lord. And that's why these things needed to be in place before that golden altar of incense was made. So that the high priest, so that we had an intercessor, so that we had the Mashiach, the one who said well, at one point in time that no one goes to the Father except through Him. We need that in place before we can go and worship the Lord, the Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, before we can worship Him appropriately. Amen? 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, for your instructions of the high priest, Lord. And Father, we who are confess a belief in Yeshua of Nazareth as our Messiah, Lord, we see so many patterns and parallels how he truly was the fulfillment of these things. That he was the anointed one, Lord. Even though he walked among the people, appeared as a common man, Father, he was the anointed one who, whose first service was to you, Lord who served you at your right hand, who is clothed in majesty and in honor and in beauty, Father. Father, I pray that we continue to learn these things, the instructions for the tabernacle and the high priest, as we be encouraged in our personal faith, Lord, even though we do not have a high priest or a temple service to go and follow and worship you in a certain way, Lord. Lord, we have the spiritual instruction that you feed us with. We have the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah and we have all of these instructions, Lord. And I pray that all of these things encourage us and strengthen us in our faith. Every time that we go and worship you, Lord, may we do it appropriately and reverently before you. May our prayers, our fervent prayers, be that of fasting and appropriateness, Lord. May nothing immodest or lewd or inappropriate be in that tabernacle, Lord, in your sight at any point in time when we go and worship you. So, Father, we love you, we bless you, and thank you on the Sabbath day for all your teaching and instruction. And we thank you for all these things. In Yeshua's name, Amen. Now the blessing after the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Asher Lanu Torah Temet V'chayalam Natabetocheinu Baruch Adonai Nonten HaTorah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the um, letter from Paul entitled Philippians. Um, This week, um, Ephraim shared with us from the portion Tetzaveh and about the construction of all of the materials that came together uh, to make the high priest's garments. And just to reiterate um, what Ephraim had to say there, that in the actual Hebrew, it doesn't refer to just the high priest. It refers to the high priest that was anointed. And there's special emphasis on the anointing part. Um, and to not to repeat what Ephraim has said, but obviously that's a reference to the Messiah. He's the anointed one. This high priest stands in as the Messiah being the anointed one. Now, I want you to remember that point and that principle because Paul here is going to be saying a big thank you to the Philippians for the aid and support that he himself received while he was doing his ministry. And there's going to be a little bit of a play here uh, that, that takes us back to the Torah portion so that you can see how the gifts were being administered and used. Um, and it's a very important principle about giving. Uh, last week, we talked about giving a little bit. It was from the portion Teruma about how it's giving from the heart. It's giving intended uh, to the benefactor. It's given the value of the gift is determined by the giver, not by the person who receives it and uh, enjoys the gift. It's determined by the giver. And how we compare the gift that the Lord has made to us 
Its value is determined by him. When we make a gift to him, the value is determined by us uh, toward him. So let me, with that as a backdrop, let's look at what Paul has to say here in Philippians chapter 4 as he's concluding his letter uh, to the Philippians. Beginning at verse 10, it says this. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Now that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am, I know how to get along with the humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in your affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which it increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from you, from Ephroditus, uh, what you have sent me, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in the glory of Yeshua the Messiah. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now again, Paul is basically saying thank you to the Philippians for uh, the nature of their gift, the timeliness of their gift, and um, and he's recounting to them uh, how he regards that. Now, uh, when we stop and think about uh, giving gifts and receiving gifts, um, the world has a tendency to teach us one sort of way, but spiritually we're supposed to learn a slightly different way about this whole subject. The world, um, when it goes to giving, um, it's based on, and some of these principles came out last week, it's based on, well, do I have an abundance to give? The world will then say, okay, I have an abundance to give, so I'll, I'll give some of it. And then they look down at what they have to give, and they go, well, I don't want to give too much. I mean, these are the thoughts that go through. Well, I'm not going to be using that anymore, so let's give that. The one... They undervalue the one they devalue is the nature of the gift. Now, the spiritual lesson from last week was giving comes from the heart, and it has to be of great value to the giver. That's the value of the gift. The Lord gives instruction, for example, if you go out and you want to select some lambs and you want to give one uh, to the Lord, you're supposed to go out and select the best one. That's the one for the Lord. Not the weak one, not the less than the same size as one, not the one that doesn't quite look right to you, not the one that's blemished, not the one that is lame. Don't give that one. You give the best one that you've got. Now, if the best one you've got 
is, is a lamb that doesn't look so good, well, that's the best one you have because the value of it is, is done there. There's a, uh, I've never forgotten this story, uh, which illustrates giving. The, um, um, the story goes about a mother and a father, and they have a little boy. And uh, the little boy uh, goes out, and he's out in the street, and he uh, finds two sticks. And so he gets, finds an old rusty nail and a hammer. And he arranges the two sticks, and he, you know, nails the two of them, and he makes something together. He attaches these two sticks together, and he brushes it off, and maybe gets his knife out, and he whittles on it a little bit, you know. For, but essentially, it's, it's two sticks. And now he takes this gift that he's made, and he comes into his mom. And the mom, of course, loves the son, cares for the son. And the kid walks up, and the first thing he says is, look, Mom, look what I made for you. Now, Mom looks at these two sticks, has a pretty good idea of where they came from, and that there's no particular use for it. But she's looking on the heart and sees the heart of the child and immediately bends down and hugs him and loves him and says, oh, it's the most wonderful uh, two sticks nailed together I've ever seen, you know, and we need to find a proper place to use this or pl- put it, you know, and thank you very much, you know, and so forth. Now, the same kid and the same two sticks walks into the father and says, Dad, uh, I, I have a gift for you. And he looks back over to the kid and he says, what? what? And he says, well, I put, I put two, two, two sticks together for you. Now, immediately, Dad goes, what, what is this? What, that looks like they come out of the gutter. What, don't bring that dirty stuff in here. Get that stuff out of the house. And, um, and it has to, has to explain, there's a lot of variability in a gift. Uh, from one hand, it can be sentimental. It can be of great meaning. Uh, the gift itself, intrinsically, doesn't have to have that much value. Uh, on, another, uh, on another level... Uh, the value of the gift becomes the, the standout item, and if it's two sticks that came out of the gutter, you know, it's not going to be regarded as a high gift. Um, when it, and and you got to have some kind of basic understanding about gifts and gift giving, especially this is an important subject for spiritual things. Let me tell you why. Because one of the most powerful uh, things that we get to do spiritually in our faith is to make gifts to the Lord and to make gifts to other brethren in the name of the Lord. And I want to touch on that for just a little bit because Paul has received gifts from the Philippians that are coming to his benefit, but he recognizes these are really gifts to the Lord. And so he's acknowledging the gifts, graciously receiving them, thanking them for it, illustrating, for example, you sent it to me in my need. You know, by the way, you sent me a gift when it was in your need. You know, you needed it more than I did, but you still sent it. And, oh, by the way, you've sent a gift that has ample ample supply. It's not just meeting the minimum need. It really has taken care of me. In other words, he's going through a whole variety of things that are setting values 
on the gifts that he's got. Now, if you go back into the Torah portion, and that's the reason why we have this parallel here, all of the gifts that came in for to, to make the garments of the high priest, in effect, they were personal gifts to Aaron. This is the attire Aaron is going to wear. We, we are picking the garment that Aaron, the high priest, is going to have. But as I mentioned to you before, the, the way the scripture is written, it doesn't say just the high priest Aaron. It says the high priest Aaron that was anointed. And so one of the things that's not difficult for us to understand whatsoever is, well, obviously all of these garments for the high priest, surely they really belong to the Lord. And they belong to the temple and to the tabernacle. Even though Aaron wore these, why we know it was really gifts to the Lord. Now, we don't have any problem understanding that from the Old Testament standpoint, but do we understand the same principle when we give gifts to one of our fellow brethren to meet their needs? Or do we get caught up and say, oh, well, you know, we just gave it to them. You ever heard of the fellow who uh, found out one of the brethren or his neighbor or something was in need, and so he, you know, kind of got caught up in having to help him out. And so let's say he did something significant. Let's say he coughed in uh, several shuckles, and uh, it went to help the fellow. And then in the aftermath, you know, the guy is kind of complaining about the guy. And, you know, almost the kind of thing, well, you know, he really didn't deserve it. Or, well, how did he misuse it? Or whatever the case may be. You know, he, you know, he really got himself into that mess because he wasn't very wise to begin with, you know, kind of thing. And they act begrudging that they had to share something with him, you know, to help him out and so forth. And obviously his heart was not in the gift, okay? His heart really wasn't in the gift. But let's take the other end now, the guy who got it, and it really did help him, and so forth. And guess where his heart is at? If his heart is in the right place, and this is where Paul is coming from in this portion, he's recognizing, I know what you did for me. I know you, it was your resources. I know you came to do it. However... I see a much bigger picture of what God is doing in my life, and he's taken what you have given, and he's transformed it into something that I truly needed. And he has met my needs. Um, it's essential, as I've said to you before, for you to learn that the value of the gift is determined by the giver. Your heart attitude, and for what purpose are you sharing? Are you sharing out of necessity, or are you sharing out of joy? Are you sharing because it's expected of you, or are you sharing because you had a desire to do so? And what I would suggest to you is that you need to share from the heart. In other words, you have, you're motivated to do it, you want to do kindness, you want to help. If you do that, you, the giver, are going to get benefit from the gift. But let's now set all of that aside. Let's talk about the person who receives the gift. Let's say that you're the receiver of the gift and you know this person has given to you begrudgingly. You're going to have to overcome that. You're going to have to 
find some way to kind of lay that down. That's his problem, not yours. What you want to learn how to do is whatever comes in is to be able to recognize this was really God that was taking care of you. Thank you, Lord. And even if you wanted to have this guy begrudgingly and upset and so forth, use him, it's okay. But I'm going to recognize and honor that you're the one that really gave me the gift. You know, I'm, I'm truly the recipient of your blessings from you. Now, if you've got a person who gives graciously and gives correctly, and it also person receives it graciously and he's looking to the Lord, there's a whole lot more that's going on there between the two. That gift suddenly has become the bond between the two. The why the Lord wants you to bring gifts to him is to build the bonds you know, to him, that you build the relationship. And all relationships, think about this, all relationships always have gift giving. Try getting through 40 years of marriage and never give your wife a gift. See how far, how, la- how long you can last. Because she definitely equates it as part of the relationship, that it's part of the bonds of the relationship. And if you failed to give a gift at an appropriate time, you will pay for it dearly uh, in a variety of ways. And by the way, we're all that way. If I give a gift to a certain friend and he does not give me any gift in exchange at an appropriate time for me, then I wonder about, you know, how strong is the relationship at all um, whatsoever. So gift giving is a very important part in the bonds. The whole reason that the altar was set up in the temple in the tabernacle was so that people could bring gifts, mostly food type gifts um, for it. Or they could bring other types of gifts to the tabernacle for the purpose of, of worship as well. And if you stop and look back at the whole idea of the tabernacle and the temple, it was all built by gifts. It was gifts that did it. Gift giving is a central part of our faith. We are to be reminded that the Lord has given us his most indescribable gift to us for our redemption and that we should be willing to give gifts of our life to others uh, as well. Now, the people that get into that learn how to give, learn how to receive, to do well in the faith. People that don't get that, don't learn that principle, are going to struggle in their faith. The uh, Some people have difficulty um, giving gifts because, quite honestly, they've never learned how to receive a gift. They're, un, they're uncomfortable. Oh, well, don't give me a gift. Well, I can tell you, that person's not going to do well at giving gifts. Because um, until you come to appreciate what you've received, you don't know how to properly appreciate what you can give. So for us... One of the most important lessons, spiritual lessons that we learn is to learn more and more about what has the Messiah done for us. What has the Father given to us as a gift, the gift of eternal life, the gift of life here, uh, the gift of, of forgiveness, the, the, all of the gifts that God gives to us. If we will focus on those and learn about those, 
it actually will enable us to be a better giver to the, not only the Lord, but to other people as well. Um, it's, a, it's a very simple dynamic. If I, uh, uh, I, I make a new friend, and if what I do is the first thing I, I do in, in meeting with him, let's say that uh, I give him a gift of, say, some playing cards. Now, as long as our relationship is around doing maybe, say, tabletop games, that's a pretty nice gift. That, that fits into what's going on, what, what's, what's happening there. Um, but let's say that, uh, that it's a lady friend. And if I suddenly up it up to bringing her a flower, you know, in a, in a, little, a little single flower into the thing, that, that's a different level of gift. That's, that means a little bit different than just we'll play cards. Okay? And if all of a sudden you bring her a bouquet of flowers and maybe some chocolates or maybe some perfume or something like that, that's a whole other kind of gift, you know. You take her out to dinner. Uh, that's a different kind of gift. And the gifts then reflect the depth of the relationship, the, the quality of the relationship, and they become representative of those things. And uh, so learning how to give good gifts is extremely important, especially in our relationship with the Lord. The Lord instructs us, as I've mentioned to you before, um, that the first gift that we're to learn how to do is the gift of the tithe. He says, take a tenth of the increase that I've given to you, set that aside, that belongs to me. I'm going to teach you how to give me, give to me, and so that you can see how this works. Then we're taught about how to make a free will love offering, something completely separate from tithe. I just am motivated in my heart. I want to share a gift, and you learn how to do that. Ultimately, you come up to the level of you learn how to give a gift called the widow's mites. You stop giving out of your abundance and your things, and suddenly you get to the point where you want to give a gift of your life. Out of your very essence of you, I want to give a gift of me. Do that. The Lord has done all of those for us. And that's what Now, Paul's, what he writes here, he's being very gracious as a receiver, very complimentary of the giver. We need to learn to do that, too. Be complimentary of the Lord. Think on all of the good things he's given and express to him your thanksgiving in that regard. But also transfer that to your brethren. Be thankful for your brethren their companionship, their joining in with you on a task, whatever gifts and expressions that they might offer to you. Again, they're reflective of the relationship. And you'll discover that uh, some will give much and some will give little. You want to learn to determine, you know, who, who's giving from the heart. That will help uh, lead you as to how you should respond to that person. Um, and um, and how important they are to you to build the bonds of relationship and community with them together. Uh, there's more that could be said here, but I would I would pretty much just be repeating.
the basic point uh, that's being made here. In our Torah portion, these materials were collected. They made garments of honor for the high priest, for Aaron, and for the other priests, so that it was a good thing that benefited all. And I submit to you that if you will focus in on your giving uh, to give honorable gifts, uh, gifts that reflect your heart, gifts that you know will be given to bring glory to the Lord, to bring honor to Him, I can assure you that your gifts will be received well and they will accomplish what it is that you wanted to do. If now you are the person who's on the receiving end of those gifts, you need to remember they aren't just gifts to you. They're really gifts to the Lord and it's part of God's provision to care for you. And so you need to be thankful not only of the giver but of the Lord and the way he's worked things out for you. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the incredible gift of you. Thank you for the multitude of gifts that you've given to us and given to me personally. I thank you for it, Lord. And I ask, Lord, that the gifts that we give, that you'd somehow multiply toward the benefit of your kingdom, to increase your kingdom, and to bless many. Thank you very much. In Yeshua's name, amen. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing. and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around singing Shabbat Shalom, everybody sing Shalom 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 